This week on Thinking Biblically, we have a special guest who's going to take us to the movies and bring the Hebrew prophets along. Welcome to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. And sometimes we do that through engaging conversations with old friends and new friends. And I'm looking forward to uh, talking to our guest in this edition of Thinking Biblically. But before we do that, I want to remind everyone to please subscribe and to share, like, and review. Uh, leave comments uh, in the comments section, and uh, I'll share later on how you can contact me and our guest uh, directly if you want to do that. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce to you somebody that I've just met. His name is Tony Watkins, and Tony has been a teacher, speaker, and writer on media and the Bible for more than 30 years. He is currently the Fellow for Public Engagement at Tyndale House. Tyndale House is a research institute at Cambridge University in England, housing one of the world's most advanced libraries for biblical scholarship. Tyndale House is a community of researchers studying the Bible at the highest level and collaborating on projects to deepen Bible knowledge. Tony is nearing the end of his doctoral research at Cambridge, focusing on his two obsessions, the Hebrew prophets and media. Hopefully in our time together, we'll find out how all that works. Before joining Tyndale House, Tony worked in partnership with several organizations, including Damaris Norway, a strategic hub for networking, cultural apologetics, and community engagement, offering worldview analysis of cultural stories and products in order to develop resources for churches, schools, and the wider society. Tony has also worked as the coordinator of the Lausanne Media Engagement Network, which is committed to a renewed critical and creative biblical engagement with media and technology. Do you note the theme here? Tony is an associate with Living Leadership, a discipleship and leadership training ministry, and a lead tutor for Formation School, a one-year discipleship program affiliated with Living Leadership. He's an adjunct lecturer at NLA University College and has been a visiting lecturer at MF Norwegian School of Theology, both in Norway. He's also been a visiting professor at Cliff College, a theological school in Sheffield, England. Tony is the author of Focus, the Art and Soul of Cinema and Dark Matter. Oh, sorry, I said that wrong. Of Focus, the Art and Soul of Cinema and Dark Matter, a Thinking Fan's Guide to Philip Pullman, both available through Amazon. Tony is married to Jane, who is Director of Mentoring for Growing Young Disciples, an organization devoted to promoting and supporting biblical children's and youth ministry. Tony and Jane are trying to move to Cambridge from Southampton in the south of England. Now, this is something that Tony mentioned that I needed to actually change what I had written in my suggested bio. And by saying, they're trying for, hey, folks, they're trying to move to Cambridge. So I guess if there's anybody there that can help them move from Cambridge, now to Cambridge from Southampton, you'll have to contact him. Maybe you have the means to get them there. Welcome to Thinking Biblically, Tony. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much. Great to meet you too, Alan. I don't know if you want to comment on the trying to move thing. Well, the uh, the most helpful thing would be for somebody to give us their their big house for about a tenth of its normal value. Prices in Cambridge are astronomical. <laughs> Excellent. Anything else? No, no, that's all. I don't ask for much. <laughs> well, God can do anything. 
Uh, you, sure. I, 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 we've got stories, but we're not going to, we're going to talk about story. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I came from a, a family background where we couldn't do anything because we couldn't afford this and we couldn't afford that. And grew up with what I later would come to understand as a poverty mentality. And I remember happening upon Matthew 6 for the first time, the idea that that if we do what God wants us to do, follow him, seek his kingdom, he's going to take care of the rest. And uh, that hasn't always been easy, but he, he's he been true to his word. Yeah. So just wait. Just make sure you get out. of When the house starts to fall, make sure you get out of the way. Does, <laughs> does that remind you of a movie? Okay. <laughs> so you've got these two obsessions, the, the Hebrew prophets and media. And we've never met. I don't know if those are. I'm really interested in both of those, and I'd be really happy to hear um, whether. So, do you hold them together, or they? Do sometimes you go to the the shelf of the Hebrew prophets, and then you have a shelf for media, or are you seeking to see how biblical prophetic writings speak into the media? saturated world that we live in uh yes all of the above i, I think um so for a long time I, I so in your introduction you said that i've worked in in, in talking writing about media in the bible for uh, just a little over 30 years and primarily especially the last 25 or so years primarily that's been about christian media engagement uh, writing about uh, films, books, television programs, uh, and sometimes other things, but primarily those three, from a Christian and philosophical perspective, often for a, for a secular audience, um, always trying to bring the Bible into that. And, and so that was my professional world, teaching and training about Christian media engagement. But alongside that, for um, 25 or so years, I've had this kind of mad burning obsession with the Old Testament prophets. Um, and um, I, I bumped into Ezekiel sort of 25 or so years ago. And um, I used to run a, a student group that met very early on a Wednesday morning. And we used to do apologetics and worldview stuff and and, and media things. And uh, after a while, a couple of years of this, they said, we'd like to do some some hard Bible. And so the consensus was that the hardest bits were either going to be Ezekiel or Revelation. And we would hear things about Revelation from time to time. So, so let's go Ezekiel. And, and oh, well, I just fell in love with Ezekiel, really. And then he introduced me to his mates, and we've been hanging around ever since. Uh, so, yeah, along, so alongside my professional work, I had this, this growing, um, really quite mad obsession with the prophets. And that increasingly became part of what I was doing. I was teaching and uh, on the prophets whenever I got an opportunity. Uh, I used to be involved in... Um, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students um, graduates course in Europe called Bible and Culture that was originally seven weeks and then four weeks. And I would for, for one week of that, I would teach through one of the prophets. Uh, and so to have 20 odd hours to be able to teach through a prophet is is such a gift and a treat. And so so it just fed my obsession, really. <laughs> it got more and more. And then probably six years ago now, I reached a point of maybe not a crisis in my ministry, but a sense of I need to have a clearer sense of what the Lord would have me to do. Uh, you mentioned Damaris Norway. Before I was very involved in Damaris Norway, I was part of the, 
the team of Demaris UK, which no longer exists. I was involved in setting that up um, in in 1996. Um, and then when when I left Demaris UK and was in, then throwing myself more into Demaris Norway and some of the other things, I was doing so many things. And I reached this point of saying, I, I need some clarity from the Lord as to what I should do. And I, I felt like I was sitting with the media in one hand, which I've been doing professionally for so long, and I couldn't turn my back on it. And on the other hand, I had this this mad obsession with the profits that I didn't. It didn't feel right just to keep my little toy profits in a box and and take them out and play with them from time to time. You know, it it felt like the Lord had given me uh, a deep desire to really get into them even further. And so I, I concluded that the only thing to do is to bring these together. And so that that was the the beginning of thinking about my PhD program, uh, which is relating Old Testament prophets to contemporary culture. Uh, so it is trying to bring the two together. How do the prophets speak into uh, today's media world? And yes, I do have shelves for the prophets and shelves for the media, and they don't mix that much. But when I finish my PhD, there'll be, there'll be something that covers them both. <laughs> Would you say uh, that uh, media is the prophetic voice of our day or or if it is how is it I, that's a that's a very very interesting question um walter brueggemann says that the the essence of the prophet's role is to challenge what he calls the dominant consciousness of the day and to um, to envision people to present an alternative consciousness. And so I think under that understanding of prophecy, that is what media narratives are, are doing very often. Well, some of them are challenging the dominant consciousness um, and some of them are reinforcing it. Uh, so there is actually, there is a book already on prophets and media called uh, Prophetically Incorrect by Robert Woods, and somebody Patton can't remember his first name, um, and and they they pick up on this a little bit, and they they talk about there being the prophetic role of, of challenging and the priestly role of reinforcing, and so they say that much mainstream media is more of a priestly role of reinforcing the dominant consciousness, the the the, the basic ways that we think, um, the what one of your. Um, Fellow countryman Charles Taylor would call the social imaginary. They 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 just play into that. They reinforce it. Uh, whereas there are others, the independent filmmakers in particular, or the the more uh, out of the mainstream television makers, and and certainly many writers who who have this deep discontent with the way the world is, recognize that there are things that are wrong, and so they then are presenting something that is challenging to the status quo, challenging to the mainstream. They want to argue for uh, for perhaps particular concern for, for some vulnerable group within society. They, they want to argue uh, against um, a militaristic approach to, to international relations or against consumerism. And, and so in that sense, I think there is definitely a prophetic role. I do feel a little uncomfortable in saying that too strongly, though, because it seems to me that the biblical role of prophecy is, is much more than social critique. And so what the, that 
would have just been saying works fine if you see prophecy as social critique. But fundamentally, I think a biblical prophet is somebody who hears from God. In fact, Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah 17, I think it might be, um, Jeremiah talks about a prophet as being one who stands in the heavenly council, who who hears what what God is discussing with his with his angelic council. And when he's talking about the false prophets, he says, have they stood in this heavenly council? And so the prophet is somebody who hears who hears from God, who hears God's plans, and and then is called to speak into his culture a word of 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 challenge and exhortation that that does challenge their status quo and says to them, if you if you turn, if you repent, then you can experience blessing. If you continue in this in this way, uh, then then you will encounter judgment in, in instead. Yeah, so I, I find it helpful to uh, understand or grasp, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, that a, a prophet is a prophet is a prophet, and then you have true prophets and false prophets. Yeah, sure. So there's a prophetic role. So when, yep. you know, we're not mm-hmm. used to people called prophets in, in our cultures. In the biblical setting, there were all sorts of prophets. And so prophets were people who claimed to speak from God or the gods. Mm. So they were a mouthpiece yeah. for God or the gods. But that didn't mean they were legitimate. So, of course, if they were representing a false god, they were automatically false. Yep. If they were representing the true god, they could be true or false. Absolutely. But the prophetic role is a prophetic role as opposed to the teaching role or some other role that somebody might have. Yes. And yes. so I would see it, it, news media today, for example, and I, there's this talk about news media used to be fundamentally reporting, and then you had opinion pieces. Well, now mm-hmm. it seems that most of what they do is opinion pieces. You know, This is the way it is. And they don't even say, this is the way I see it. They say this is the way it is, um, and this implication that people should fall in line with what they say that it is, and if you don't fall in line with it, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. But that's that is prophetic. Sometimes sure. it's pathetic, but it's <laughs> an attempt to t- tell the society what really is. Yes, and so when news media does it, uh, the, the subtle part is that they don't. They're not telling you what they're doing. They're just doing it. Um, people don't necessarily understand what they're doing, hmm. but yeah. at least it's overt. You know, this is what it is. This is what is happening. Yeah. Film, on the other hand, and I'd love to hear you speak on this. There are films that are very overt. Mm-hmm. And then we could argue whether an overt film is a good film. Maybe some are, uh-huh. but probably some of the best films are the more subtle ones where they yeah. are telling you the way things are or should be but it's doing through through drawing you into a story can you, can you speak into that yes uh oh there's 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 so much to say um yeah i i absolutely agree with with the distinction between the prophetic role and and the figure of a, of a true prophet and journalism at its best should be um should be occupying much more of that true prophetic role. Even in, even a secular journalist who 
who is not going to speak from God. There is a there is a sense in which they they do the same thing of looking at the present in the light of the past and saying this is the future that we're facing, and so that that, that is the essence of 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 what prophecy is about. Um, but the biblical prophet does that from from a distinctively a distinctive perspective because they've heard from God. Uh, and of course, they're not just critiquing social behavior, but the people's worship. Uh, so then uh, on your other point about, about film, uh, I think that's absolutely right. Films uh, and other media narratives, fictional narratives, they they present a vision of, of how life should be. Um, or very often at, at any rate, sometimes it may be more of a, of a vision of how life shouldn't be. But, but there's a portrayal of life in in some way, even if that's uh, turned into the context of a bunch of animated toys, or it's it's tall blue beings on another planet, or um, it's it's set in the past, or, or you know whatever it is, it's still nevertheless in some way reflecting the experience and and the world as the writer and and or director see it, because we. However much we imagine another world, our imagination is still based on the world that we experience. And so when when a writer portrays characters behaving in ways that they perceive to be positive, it's because they see those behaviours in the world around them and perceive them to be positive. When they portray a character behaving negatively, it's because they perceive that kind of behaviour in the real world as negative. So I mean, all, all of that's pretty straightforward. Um, but then as the narrative progresses, the it, in most narratives you get some kind of resolution where the end state of things is is better than it was at the beginning maybe the beginning of the story is a is a is a collapse of of a of a good situation a kind of a of a lost paradise kind of thing it may not be a true paradise before but there's there's a loss of of a good state of affairs and so by the end of the film you want to see that restored or or maybe it begins with with a lack a deficiency um a problem and that problem has to be overcome by the end of the film and most films have a positive ending we we want to go out of the cinema feeling yes we've everything has worked out great and sometimes we're disappointed, but but when it works out great, what we've been given then is is a vision of of what the good should be, because the central character has discovered things about themselves. They've they've been through a transformative arc. We we talk about a narrative arc, but I want to talk about a, a transformative arc because they they go through some change, and that change is reflective in almost all situations. I think it's reflective of what the writer and director feel um, is 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 good in life and, and how life should be. One of the um, concerns I've had with film and is my wife and I have raised 10 now all adult children. So we've had lots of opportunity to deal with media. And there were the days where we hardly ever watched anything. You had to borrow a, a little TV or something. And that's changed to the years as it has with so many. And now it, it's everywhere. All seems, feels like it's everywhere all the time. Um, my, one of my biggest concerns, there was, of course, there are certain images and certain kinds of stories that, especially for younger kids, we don't didn't think they were mature enough to be exposed to those sorts of things. But the thing that concerned me the most was what I called moral confusion. 
where the story is told in such a way that in it in the most simplest form you end up rooting for the the true bad guy as opposed to the true good guy and good good guys are made to look bad and bad guys are made to look good um i remember experiencing this and i only saw the first one it was pirates of the caribbean and in everyone that was actually of any kind of noble background the normal good guys were all bad and you're rooting and i know this is going to ruin a lot of people rooting <laughs> for pirates right yep pirates are not good guys doesn't mean there can't be nobility between them. Doesn't mean a pirate can never do a good thing. A pirate might walk a little lady across the street one day. But by <laughs> and large, they live for the not good. Yep. And yet the, the, the affections of the audience turn to criminals. Mm -hmm. What is that? Mm. Why do we do it? And is mm. it... Am I right to be concerned about moral confusion? Oh, I, I, yes, I think absolutely you're right because it it plays it it tramples over the moral categories that that, that we hold, um, and we can watch Pirates of the Caribbean. I prefer not to. I think I enjoyed the first one a bit, but the anyway, there we are. We'll leave that one side. Um, I was told by some of my kids just the other day it came up again and it was like the first one's great the other's not so much yeah, send in okay. your comments folks I don't mind <laughs> go on Tony yeah I don't even want to say the first one's great it's it's all right um but but yeah yeah I guess we know pirates are bad people but but we can root for this one because he's he's a bit of a character and and whatever he's you know we quite like him so but but yeah it is it is absolutely playing with our with our moral categories in in really problematic ways um if if we don't stop and think about it um there are more subtle examples uh the the example that's coming to me it, off the top of my head is a, is an old and not very subtle one but i'll give it anyway uh i don't know whether you remember um uh oh can i even remember the uh, bridges of madison county do you remember do you remember that with uh uh was it harrison ford and meryl street okay well there's Say the this is again? Bridges of Madison County, and uh, Meryl Streep is her husband's away, and uh, I think I'm pretty sure it's Harrison Ford. Um, it's, it's so long ago, I can't, I can't even remember now. I'm sure all sorts of people are saying, "No, idiot man!" It's, of course, it's not. Um, but but the, the 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 male figure, whoever it is, turns up on on you know out of the blue, and and he they fall in love, and and the whole structure of the film gears you up to want these two to fall in love and to see their romantic relationship as being the fulfillment of, of who they are. This, this, this is how should things should be. And, and you, you have to, you have to pull yourself up short and say, hang on, this, this film is encouraging me to want these two to have an affair. This, this is not, this is not what I think is, is good behavior. This is not good for anybody. And yet, the, the the film wants you. It 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 lures you in um, to thinking that this is the best denouement that there could be for for these two. Uh, so that is that is very problematic. And of course, it yeah. happens because people are not writing stories out of a biblical morality. So you know, some some ways we can't blame them um, because they they don't they don't 
any longer recognize how how deeply damaging to the human spirit it is to not live according to to God's principles, uh, particularly in in sexual relationships. Um, uh, so, and yet, of course, there is a deep desire in us to 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 meet and to know and to fall in love with somebody who who can be our soulmate or whatever. Maybe maybe that's a very modern conception anyway. Um, but there is that there is that deep longing in us. And so so when you see a story that plays on that, of, of course it, it it connects to something deep within us. Uh, we understand the, the the longing. But then we need to say, oh, but this film is satisfying that longing in in an inappropriate way, in the wrong way. Which humans and have are, done. Humans have done. We have the biblical story of of David and Bathsheba, and, we, and that gives us God's lens. It it doesn't pull any punches on <laughs> on. Now it's not displaying it the way Hollywood uh, would display it, but there's no doubt what's going on. And then we're shown what it the implications of that and what it does to people to engage in 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 such a way. Uh, my wife and I had as an experience in. in Similarly, with the like the movie you mentioned, with Terms of Endearment, it's a famous uh -huh, yeah. Shirley MacLaine film, and yeah. um, we came out of there realizing that there's there were two couples having illicit relationships, and one was deemed by the audience to be bad, and oh, one yes. was deemed by the yeah. audience to be good, and yet yeah. they were both wrong. Yeah. And like, what are they doing to us? We don't. Human beings are so malleable. And it's something we're, we're, that's, it's one of the things like I, as believers, we often want to sit people down. We want to get out our Bibles and we're going to explain, you know, step one, step two, step three, step four. And then the prophets of the society, they proclaim, they go out there. And I don't know what the agenda is of either the, you know, the people behind the movie you mentioned or terms of endearment. What were they really thinking? You know, chance of all they were thinking is what can earn us the big bucks. I, I, you probably don't use that term in the in the UK. Big pounds, <laughs> heavy heavy pounds. You make heavy pounds. What do you say? <laughs> I don't think we have an equivalent actually. Uh, Lots of money. money. We might just say big money. Yeah, big money. Okay. Anyway, that could be for all we know. That's the only. And by the time all the powers that be get through with the final uh, version of the film that they're going to produce, it could all be about the money and any artistic or messaging that was in the heart of the writer, the person who started it off the project could be lost. We don't know. But in terms of the finished product, um, it you know, all, we're just being influenced by these influences and we need to be, as you know, Paul says somewhere, thinking beings thinking yeah. beings. And that's why I've tried with my own kids. And when I have the opportunity with others, encourage people to engage what we're seeing, what we're watching, be it the news, mm. be it politicians, be it um, the films and the shows that we, that we watch. Mm. Um, one of the questions I want to ask is kind of a different topic, I guess. Um, years ago, a friend of ours, a friend of the family, who's a writer and an editor had a t-shirt 
And the picture on the T-shirt, you saw the big screen. You saw like the silhouette of the heads in the audience. And on the screen were these words uh, that said, movies ruining the book since 1920. <laughs> nice. What do you well, what what do you think of that? Can can movies represent whether it's uh, fictional or non-fictional books? Is what's the difference between media in writing and media in film? Oh, it's 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 huge. Um, I, I think it's very unfair of us to expect a film to satisfy us like a book does to be able to to match up to the book in any way because the uh, books can can just be so much bigger. They've got so much more time. Even a long film has to constrain itself to two and a half, three hours. Uh, I mean, you might you might do a trilogy of films if you're making Lord of the Rings, but then you're basing them on <laughs> you're basing it on a trilogy to start with. So um, you you have to cut so much of of the story usually or you have to cut a lot of the dialogue. You you can't show the inner workings. Of, of the mind in the same way that a that a book narrator can um you have to find you have to find ways of doing that maybe externalizing the dialogue or putting a voice over or just just ignoring all of those dimensions um you and, and then you have that this fundamental problem of audiovisual medium is radically different from a written medium. They're, they're simply not the same thing. And so you can tell exactly the same story, but it's going to feel different when you put it on screen. Uh, but in, of course, you can't just tell exactly the same story. So you, you have to adapt it. You have to to make it work in a different format with, with, with a different grammar, if you like, a different way of communicating meaning. Uh, you've got to bring in new visual elements. You you have to fill in gaps that that become very apparent when uh, you don't you you just read over them when you're in the book. You don't feel like they're gaps because all sorts of things play in your head. But when you put put it on screen, you've got to represent it. So what do you do? What what does this look like? And as soon as you take something that's in people's heads and say this is what it looks like, you'll get it right for some. You'll get it wrong for others. Um, I think I mentioned Lord of the Rings. I think Peter Jackson did a pretty good job with the Lord of the Rings films. Um, when I saw the, um, the the city of Gondor in, in the third film, Return of the King, at the end, I I was open mouthed with astonishment because what what he'd done was so close to what I imagined in my head. So for me, that was he's got this right. This is just extraordinary, and I thought his representation of Rivendell was was beautiful. But equally, there will be other people with different imaginations of those two things who would say, Jackson got it, uh, made an absolute mess of Gondor. Looks nothing like that. So you, you you can't win as soon as you try to to do that. So the question is, can you do a good adaptation? It, it, uh, an adaptation that's faithful to the spirit of, of the book. And of course you can. Um, sometimes you can make a story or a version that, is even more satisfying because the book has has flaws for whatever reason. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but yeah, it can happen. Just doesn't happen very often um, because people have usually read the book first, and and therefore the film is always something of a of a disappointment. We had an experience with uh, *To Kill a Mockingbird*, 
So it was mm. my wife introduced me to uh, the movie many years ago, and she really loved it. And I saw it and I thought this, you know, it's it's a uh, it's heavy, but it's, it's excellent in so many ways. Then she had already read the book by then. I'd never read the book. The book is marvelous. It's so well written. Right. But we both started with the movie. So then years later, we show it to some of our kids, and the movie ends. And one of our sons gets up and he's upset. This was terrible, he said. Hmm. Um, and it was because, in his opinion, and I think he was right, the movie changed the mood of the book. The movie, and you could understand why, the movie was kind of creepy. You had this character, Boo, mysterious character. It was black and white. And hmm. and there, there's, there's this music. And... There, so there's that. It made it creepier than the book was. The other thing, which and this is very interesting, and, and and don't get me wrong, myself, my family, we love books, we love movies, but I have noted, I have noticed something, and it was through this experience uh, with To Kill a Mockingbird. To killing To Kill a Mockingbird is written through the eyes of an adult based on her childhood experiences. So she's able to use adult language to describe how she felt when she was a child, which what a, what a concept yeah. that, the, yeah. that the author came up with, how to tell a story. How do you take that, the head and heart of an adult through the eyes of when they were a child, and then explicitly portray that on a screen? So there's the adult version of the child is narrating, the child is in the movie acting out the scenes, but you cannot really portray that. It's, it's in an essence or whatever you want to call it in the movie version. And so then the movie actually stands alone apart from the ideas provided by the book. So they become yeah. two different kinds of media. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely, you can't translate those kinds of things. You, the best you can do is a, is a voiceover, but but it, that does something different as well. And voiceovers get in the way; they change the way yeah. that you read what you're seeing. So, and older yeah. movies used to narration used to be more common. Yeah. Now we don't even have narration with trailers. It put the <laughs> those great voices out of work. Yes, <laughs> um, coming soon. Um, <laughs> Uh, I had an experience years ago when the first Narnia movie came out, and I, I'm not referring to the BBC series, which we won't talk about. No offense to the beloved B BBC. Th those of you who are aware of the BBC version of Narnia would know what I'm talking about. Um, but the uh, the Hollywood versions that came out several years ago, I was quite concerned. Uh, and then it got worse when it got um, it was Prince Caspian that I was really, really upset with how they portrayed certain things. Mm. And I brought that up with a friend who was a pastor. And his response was, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. It's just entertainment. And yet what they had done to the story, I thought was very, very serious because for a lot of people, like we had experienced with Tickle a Walkingbird, a lot of people see the movies first. It's going to color the way they see the book. When, what do you what do you think about that? And maybe you're aware of some of my concerns uh, in in each of those two movies. Yes, I, I, 
I don't think it's good enough to say it's just a movie because, um, it, it, yes, it, at one level it is just a movie, but it is a movie of of a much loved book or of much loved books. Um, and but more than that, for for those particular books, they are movies of of books that are are loaded with all kinds of of deep personal and theological significance for us. And so, if a if a film messes up some of the theological dimensions of that, which it really was going on with Prince Caspian, then you've got a, a real problem on your hands because then you're you're not simply misrepresenting something that people love, but you're you're getting the ideas of the book wrong because Lewis Lewis was out to communicate something and, and did communicate something very specific, very particular, and he did that very effectively in, in many ways. Um and and the film ignored that to a large extent, not just ignored it, went against it in, in some cases. So I think it was very problematic. Um, <laughs> I was with, with Damaris UK. We actually had had a contract with um, with Disney to produce resources for churches to use with Prince Caspian, which was great it, until we saw it. <laughs> oh. What do we do? So what, yeah, I just you beat me to the question. What when when when, when uh, Caspian? Uh, no, Susan hands the horn to Caspian and says, "If you need me, call me." Really now? Uh, or the conflict they created a, a conflict between Caspian and Peter. They became best buds. Um, I don't know if that also is a North Americanism. They be they became close friends with one another, and that's the book. And but oh no, it's a movie, so now we have to create conflict where there isn't conflict for the big screen. We basically we had to maintain a tactful silence. <laughs> oh, I had to maintain a tactful silence. <laughs> I was more upset about it than some others, um, but um, uh, yeah, we just had to. I just had to avoid. Saying anything about the, those those problematic issues for, for the, I'm not worried about that anymore. It's years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> hearing a critique of the first Narnia movie by a, an artist in New York. He was on some radio program, and uh, he was comparing. And I had never, I've never seen Peter Jackson's King Kong, right. um, which sounds kind of funny. I mean, the movie and um, and the uh, and he was comparing that with the first Narnia movie and Aslan right. in particular. And, you know, I thought the first, the line in which the wardrobe, I thought it was okay. It was okay. Um, and in my mind, not a bad representation. And then he began to compare how they portrayed Aslan in the movie to the book. And I realized it can't be done through a visual. The, uh, the, the, the literary Aslan is so complex, um, and, and, and complex, um, that it can't once you put on even with all that CGI and the talking lion and the Liam Neeson is as names his great voice, you actually flatten the character. You don't, and and like very different from seeing Gondor, Peter Jackson's Gondor for the first time, and all of a sudden what might have been flat becomes three dimensional. This actually flattened the character. Now, so we don't continue bashing movies. I have a question that might be helpful, and it is, can you share some movies that you've been delightfully surprised how they've portrayed truth in a way that 
maybe really, really impressed you. And maybe you would, you would even recommend these films for people who haven't seen them. Oh, now you're, now you're asking. Um, a couple of years ago, I'd have, I'd have rattled off all sorts of things, but I'm so deep in my PhD at the moment that I, that I find it hard to even remember what films I've seen in life. <laughs> it's, it's why the examples I'm giving are so old. I can't remember what I watched last week. Top, top two or three, maybe? Um, oh, well, um, I, I think the, the greatest film I've ever seen is, is Terence Malick's The Tree of Life. But of course, that's not a film for everybody because Terence Malick is a is a cinematic poet. He, he's not out to tell a story in a conventional way. There there is a there is a narrative. There is a story, um, but he is he's giving us a poetic reflection on the Book of Job uh, and on on the nature of suffering um, uh, in a very profound way. So that uh, absolutely extraordinary, but it's not for. Not to many people say so. I I watched it eight Is times it because of the content. Like so, there's some movies not for everyone because they'll find it upsetting. Some movies not for everyone because they're just not going to follow it. They're not going to appreciate it. But yeah. some movies would be like going to the orchestra. It mm. it takes a while for us to appreciate the 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 contours complexities of orchestral music, right? Yes. We need I think to it's in help in understanding that kind of music. Is that what this movie is like? I think for many people it is. Yeah, uh, there are there are many people. I wouldn't. I, I've never shown it to my wife because I, I think she she would not she would not be invested in it enough to because the the narrative is so broken up and it's so poetic. She would not be invested in it enough to 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 work through those kinds of issues so you i think you have to have for a film like that you do have to have the willingness to um suspend some of your 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 narrative expectations to 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 take your orchestra uh, analogy to spend time figuring out how how this is working uh, so i would have, say have, it is a poem. um and have you I, done Courses where you've um, showed students films, parts of films, analyzed the films. You've done that. Would you yeah, use this movie? Would you use the, or have you used this movie in a course like that? Yes, I have, but it's not an easy one to use um, because because it takes so much uh, reflection and thinking about. I still um, I, so I'm not able to figure out if you're recommending this movie or not recommending. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely am, but if you don't get it, I don't hold it against you. Uh, okay. Um, How about is there a popular film that people can more readily okay. relate to that that surprised you in terms of uh, its messaging and how and its presentation and so on? Uh, yeah, one of the greatest surprises, a film I absolutely love, is a film called Lars and the Real Girl. And I say that again, Lars and the Real Girl. Sorry, Setting I'm in... going to have to translate for our North Americans. What's that first word? Lars, L-A-R-S. Thank you. So I could have if it was Laws, but it's Lars. Okay, Lars. got it. <laughs> or or Lars to my Norwegian friends. Um, yeah, our yeah, our our dance has been a big part of our family's like uh, our kids' ballet. And our our children had a, a Christian ballet teacher. It's provided a major foundation for them, our two oldest kids, and and they were part of the with 
curriculum they were following was the Royal Academy of Dance mm -hmm. from the UK. That has really nothing to do with the story, but they were going to have their first official examination. And they were told an examiner, an examiner was going to come to examine them. So they thought they didn't know it was an examiner. <laughs> they thought see. there was this person called an examiner. <laughs> okay, laws. Laws and the West. I'm sorry, yeah, I to say that to me the other way around there. I'm sorry, laws and <laughs> the real girl. Okay, laws uh, so, and the real girl. Yeah. Okay, so what was surprising about this? Um, it's it's a beautiful story of of a guy who is 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 a really difficult kind of character. He's a very broken character. Um, he's played by brilliantly played by Ryan Gosling, absolutely superb. Um, so he's he's very nervous. He's he can't mix with people. He has he's carrying a huge load of guilt, and I'm not going to explain why why he thinks he he's guilty. Why why a tragedy that's happened in his life is his fault. Um, I, I, I'll say his mother. Is is dead, and he holds himself responsible in some way, uh, but I won't say anything more than that about it. But he, he, so he's really socially awkward, socially incapable. Really, he's got he's got a job, uh, but he just can't mix with people. And then somebody says something to him that he um, he goes to church, and the the the, the preacher is preaching about about love, and and at the end. This this old lady, Mrs. Gruner, gives him a bunch of flowers and says, "Give these to a to a pretty girl, Lars. Find you you need to, you need to find someone." And uh, it, she's so awkward; he doesn't know what to do with these flowers, and um, or, or a, an individual flower rather. And um, and then this 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 girl comes out of the church, and he just panics and kind of throws throws the flower. But he decides that he that Mrs. Gruner is right that he does need. Companionship. He does need somebody, and he he makes the most extraordinary, outrageous choice about what to do. And I and I can't tell you what that that is because it would be such a spoiler. But when I show this to groups, um, and they don't know what they don't they know nothing about the film. The moment when when they discover what Lars has done, I don't watch the screen. I watch their faces because. At the same moment, when you when you see what what he's done, they all go, "What is Tony Watkins showing us? This this is horrific," and it's and it's deeply uncomfortable because you think the whole film is going to be now extremely inappropriate, but it's it's a touching, beautiful story of this community caring for somebody who who is who is desperate for. For, for love, really, and he and he discovers love in in the community, because he doesn't know where else to get it. And the way these people care for him, it's staggeringly beautiful, and it's very funny, but it is also quite shocking. At about 25, 30 minutes in, I'm not saying any more than that. Well, I appreciate the warning. <laughs> Babette's feast, Tony. 
Oh, yes. Oh, I love that. Bet's Feast. Again, it's not a film for everybody because it's for many people these days, it's very slow. And even when it was made in late 80s, I guess, um, it, it was a slow film even by, by those standards. So it, it is slow and reflective, but it's utterly beautiful. And I think that's a good adaptation of, of the written material. I think oh, it, is there an, I didn't know there's a, there's a book. Yeah, based on I didn't a book that. Uh, Isaac Denison, who wrote Out of Africa, and um, so I think I think he, yeah, I guess it, it doesn't get everything right, but I think it's a good adaptation on the whole. But yeah. it's a beautiful film. Yeah, so, and so, so people know celebrate life yeah. and, and and the goodness of of, of life. And, yeah, yeah. For for us English speakers, uh, it's even more um, story like because it's actually in Danish and French with English subtitles. But it won the Academy Award, I think, for Best International Film. But it is a, it's it's a it's a gospel kingdom of God story, um, which already the interesting thing that probably paints something in people's minds. But you're that's the image that you have from what I just said is not Babette's Feast. It it is quite a film. I showed it to one of uh, our kids. I think they were mid mid teen, and after watching it, he said, "If that's a movie." I don't know what those other things are because it's so very different from, um, but there's nothing shocking like from this other, it's, it's, it's a sweet, it's a very, very sweet film, but I, but not sugary sweet. Oh, it's really hard to talk about movies without talking about them, isn't it? Oh, terrible, terrible. Oh, yeah. How about Joe versus the volcano? I've never seen him. Oh, I have to prevent myself from saying anything it's one of those you got it you gotta it's an early tom hanks with meg ryan as three women it's a bit zany and kind of strange it's it's kind of it's it's sort of a romantic comedy it's more of a comedy it's kind of kind of like a fairy tale you gotta be patient i don't know how many minutes you have to get in and and for me it was like when i was first shown it many years ago i was going this is weird this is so weird and I thought it happened while I was watching the, the movie, but my wife told me it's actually a couple of days later I was driving and all of a sudden I went, get it, get it. <laughs> it this is amazing. Excellent. Because it really, and it, 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 I think it's very, very striking. And, and it's really hard to talk about things uh, and not give people the details, but I think it's, it is a movie worth, worth, worth checking out. Um, mm. Have you seen um, the, the TV series, The Chosen? Is that something? Have you heard of it? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I would like to see it again. It's, oh, okay. it's PhD problems. I'm, I'm racing oh. to the end. I don't have have much time for. Yeah, well, for... I appreciate you taking time to to do this with me. It'd be very interesting to dialogue. I would love to get some people from the show onto my podcast to, to discuss right. it. They don't get everything exactly. right, but they do some amazing things, uh, both film wise and you know the story and re relating to the gospel. Um, mm. But. Um, um, how do you feel about the the phenomenon of faith films that came up? I don't know when they started to become a thing twenty years ago, maybe more. About that, um, first your general impressions, and have you been impressed by any of them? Um, I, I think I think they're I think they're a disaster, basically. <laughs> Notice uh, I was trying to whisper. That's an interesting uh, approach. I, I, 
Well, I'm a bit hesitant to say it, but I, I, I just think they're so badly done. Um, and in fact, the um, the the Chronicles of Narnia, line the Witch of the Wardrobe, was was a a key part in in the in the the uh, the growth of the faith films because Hollywood said, "Oh, there is a market for for right. for films that appeal to Christians." Um, the trouble is. We we kind of touched on this earlier without quite saying it explicitly that films are at their best when they when they show and don't tell. But films that are are made to be faith films, those who are making them, who of course have the most commendable motives of wanting to communicate the gospel through film. Of, of course, you know, I cannot follow them on that. Uh but because they want to communicate the message, it's really hard to avoid telling, not showing. And as soon as you, the, your film starts to tell, not show, starts to make things too explicit, then the film doesn't work anymore. Um, and so they they become they become awkward, um, narratively unsatisfying. The production values often could do with with being uh, being higher. There's just it sounds wrong to say this, but there's too much attention given to the gospel. But I mean, that's bef- before anybody accuses me of heresy. It's not that I don't think the gospel is, that, is absolutely- that aspect of the communication of the gospel. Not the it's not the problem's not the attention on the gospel. Yeah, because okay, actually yeah. the gospel is a lens. Yes, the actual gospel is a lens on the world yes absolutely right, right. so jesus yeah. comes and opens the uh, op- opens the blinds and we see yeah. the world according to god's design yeah but we spent yeah so it's it, very interesting this um it's one of the things about this series the chosen that's finishing up as we speak season three um the reason why it's called the chosen we automatically think well it's talking about Jesus. No, the chosen is his followers. Hmm. And it's the very first uh, screen rendition of the gospel that's done from the perspective of the people whose lives he changed, not Uh, his. So you end up with episodes where he's hardly in it. Right. You're just dealing Uh, with people's lives and what they're struggling with. And then, yeah, uh, you have to have some of the teaching. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. it's it's emphasizing the impact of that teaching more than throwing that teaching in your face. So that's showing. Some, yeah, it's, so it is. It's trying to do show, not tell, but it can't oh. not tell at all. But the thing oh, is, that's... you know, some of the greatest movies in the world have had grand speeches and yeah. and yeah, yeah. things. Yeah. There's a time for something explicit, yes. um, but it has oh, to capture true. the imagination. So I had this. Part of my story with the chosen has a big thing to do with the Bible, and and had to do with I was first working through the Gospel of Mark um, for my own personal Bible time. I eventually preached through it, and for the first time, I caught um, that the message of the Gospel and and the truth it is that it was Peter's rendition of the Gospel that Mark wrote down. It's possible that's exactly what it is. And that Mark, and I picked this up in a commentary I was reading, so it was saying, likely, 
here was Mark having heard Peter's oral presentation for who knows how long. And now he's trying to provide a written rendition of this oral presentation. And so it created in my mind the picture of Peter standing in some town square, basically shouting out this series of stories, uh, a cohesive series of, of stories. And then this idea of for him who has ears to hear came to me. Mm -hmm. um, and that idea that I'm telling you something, but do you get it? And it's mm -hmm. not simply getting it on a surface level. Do you really get the what's involved in this message? And then you have layers such as the the gospel narrative is in the context of it's the Jewish people amidst Roman oppression. Mm -hmm. But you can't emphasize the Roman oppression because of the Roman oppression. So now you're talking about another king and actually providing the most subversive story ever told. You know, it's you know, the greatest story. It's the most subversive story ever told. And you have to tell in such a way that isn't so explicit. Mm. And yet it's so effective. Mm. And so there's actually, so, and then so that somehow the chosen, whether I don't know if it had the same thoughts that I had, but it's trying to do that sort of thing. But a lot of the people who've done faith uh, uh, in the faith films haven't really captured that kind of way of storytelling. I think that's right. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I personally wouldn't paint them all with a broad brush. There are some uh, that I, I, I think have done have been done very well, and others not so much. And as we talked beforehand, we're going to watch another one though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the problem with talking about films, is like, it's like talking about songs. People's affections are very attached to them, and if you begin to critique them, they get very, very mad. That's, that's why I was, a, I was a bit hesitant to say. I think they're all awful. Yeah, but you haven't seen them all. No, no, I, I've not seen the one that that that, that your your viewers are liking. Yeah, so it it would be interesting to to go further on, which we we don't have the time to do. Um, yeah, we we. As I mentioned before we started, we could be talking for three hours, and that's not fair to our our viewers, listeners, or to you. Um, oh, there's so much I wanted to, you know, more talk about. Uh, okay, let's 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 try to close with this kind of question: How are you hearing the voice of the biblical prophets when you're engaging media? Well, that's a huge question because that's essentially that's that's the whole of my PhD. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and give a. Is, give is a there a copyright involved here? <laughs> um, Have you had an experience where, um, and and I know there could be there could be um, your your interaction with media again. It could be the news. It could be a TV show, a film, a book, and something from scripture resounds. It could be negative and critiquing, or it could be positive going, oh, I get it now in a way, you know, something that a, a Hebrew prophet has, has said, and all of a sudden it comes together. That's happened to me with songs um, mm -hmm. that all of a sudden, whoa, these pieces of all, they, the song brought the pieces together that I never would have gotten any other way. So that's a positive mm -hmm. experience. So I'll leave with you, positive, negative, both, whatever you like. 
Uh, certainly, that on a on a broader scale, I, I, there's resonance all the time. Um, I can't think immediately off the top of my head of of, a, of an example that ties in with the prophets. But one of the things I'm I'm saying with the the prophetic literature is that people struggle with the prophetic literature very often. Most people I I know trying to maybe not avoid it, but they they don't if they're trying to read through the Bible in a year, their heart sinks when it when they get to Leviticus, and then it sinks again when they get to to some of the listing chronicles, and then it and then it they you know give up the will to carry on when they get to to the prophets, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that they the prophets' language is so it's so. Well, they're using poetry most of the time, so it's very grand language, and they're using some extraordinary figures of speech and, and imagery that that people just often they just don't know what's going on. How do they're I get talking into- about all sorts of things that we don't have references for? They're the geographical references, historical yeah, references, yeah, this yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, they, they don't Being know. Being lost historical- comes natural for the reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that so they're they're lost historically. They don't understand the way the language is working. But then, so much of the prophets they perceive is is judgment oracles, which it is. You know, there is a there is a lot, and and the bits that we that are are more positive are the bits that we tend to keep going back to, and we we trot them out at Christmas or or whatever. Um, and so there are some some well worn bits of the prophets which are which are positive, but there's a lot of judgment stuff, and so people struggle with that. But what I'm what I'm arguing, it, and it's very obvious when you, when you put it in these terms, is that underneath their their judgment oracles, their their announcements of of judgment, if this sinful behavior continues their their idolatry and their social injustice which go together um underpinning that is a vision of how life ought to be in exactly the same way that we said there is for a media narrative earlier on the the director has a vision for how life should be it's communicated through the story um so the prophets have a vision for how life ought to be and that is grounded in their understanding of god as the creator who's provided everything for for his people and wants to them to live in relationship with him uh, it is uh, and therefore also grounded in their understanding of our rebellion against god at genesis 3 and 4 that and everything is now messed up but it also that supreme story of of the exodus from egypt and the the gathering together as as a nation at sinai hearing god's torah god's instruction to that shapes the people that defines them as a people now they know how to live in relationship with god they're they're wandering through the wilderness and 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 then entering into the promised land that that he has given them Uh, and then another strand that they're pulling on is the the wisdom strands not necessarily quoting wisdom literature explicitly but the ideas of wisdom literature and and the kind of how life works well and how it doesn't work well which is complementary and, and overlaps with 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 Torah material that they're pulling on all of that there's 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 the Mount Zion tradition so they've got various things uh, and that latter one of course is about the the locus of, of of God's presence being in in the temple and the, the anointed king being being on Mount Zion, and so that's the becomes the focal point of of God's people. So so they're drawing on all of these things that create a vision of how life should be, of uh, of um, flourishing relationships with God, with each other, uh, with the world around them, and with themselves. 
And then they look at the the situation around them and say, you're getting this so, so badly wrong because you've lost sight of all of these things. So, so the, the prophets then reintroduce those and and present um, an imaginary, a way of being to the people that says, if you only realign yourselves with, with the terms of the covenant again, if only you live by Torah and live for the Lord alone, you will once again experience flourishing and blessing. And if, but if you don't, well, you're in a mess. Um, and so that that vision of the good uh, and of using the word loosely shalom, um, yeah, let's not get into that, but I'm just, I'm just using it in a very loose way, that, that wellness, that fullness, completion, everything right and in its place and, and, and with integrity and because relationship with God is right, all the other relationships are right. That vision pervades all the, the narratives that that human beings make in in very subtle ways because it's it's somehow it's written into the human heart. And so, when a filmmaker makes a film or or a person writes a story, there is something in there that appeals to that, not consciously appeals to that vision of the good, but we we're, we're wired to to recognise where the good is is found, and so. That uh, there are things about um, people who work for the restoration of of the world because we should have a flourishing relationship with our environment. There, there are there are love stories because uh, uh, Lars and the Real Girl is a love story, but not ultimately about the love between a man and a woman. It's a love of a community for a broken man. That's beautiful. That you know that reflects something of of this this prophetic vision. Um, and uh or, or or getting a right relationship with god uh, i don't know whether you've ever saw a film the merry gentleman uh michael keaton's directorial debut it's quite a bleak film in many ways uh he's michael keaton plays a hitman and um he he is about to do a do a hit just before christmas one year he's standing on a roof and He's looking in the, the office buildings opposite for, for his mark. And there's a young woman played by Kelly MacDonald who has at lunchtime went to a Catholic church in her lunch break. She started a new job having escaped from an abusive husband. And she's really been really struck by this statue of Jesus with his hands held out. And, and so she's standing at the window of her office explaining to her colleague how beautiful this statue is. And, and he sees this, this, this woman standing there with, with, with her, her arms open and something moves him and he, and he stumbles and, uh, and uh, it, it doesn't, yeah, th- things happen. He bumps into her again and they, they begin this very touching relationship. And, and there's this glimmer of, of redemption and reconciliation for him. And you think he's, he doesn't, he doesn't come into a relationship with God, but you see there could be the beginnings of it. And and that sense of we are made to have a relationship with God. We are made to connect with the transcendent. Sometimes that comes out in films. So in these kinds of ways, all sorts of films, just for every film I watch, has some resonance with with some aspect of this great vision that the Bible portrays for us. Um, but I can't think of very specific ones. I um sorry, gotta press the right button here. Um I I started reading your focus book. Um, 
And uh, you say in the introduction that you referenced about 300 movies. Um, and it, you do mention a lot of movies in that one. That's the uh, focus, the art and soul of cinema. I, I wasn't able to get through it before our conversation. Um, but um, you mentioned the, uh, the Truman Show, um, which is a movie I love and other members of my family love. And it was very, one of the interesting things there is how you say in your book, how you could think of this either as a, as a good God story or as a bad God story. And it's <laughs> yeah. likely, I never thought of it, that it's possible that the intent is actually a critique of God and religion that, hmm. that Truman's escaping from. But I always took it as he was in the oppressive, um, under the oppression of lies and breaks free yep. uh, from the lies. And yes. uh, I think that kind of ambiguity isn't in scripture, but it sure. does when humans try to tell a compelling story like this one, it, it, I, it makes it even more interesting that if the intention of the writer and director was to tell it um, a, a, a story criticizing God and religion, they accidentally preach the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. we're actually in God's world. Yes. And it is a good world. It's not an oppressive one. Yes. Human, you know, the evil one and humans oppress. God, God frees. If we had yeah. more time, we would get your impressions on the whole Star Wars saga. <laughs> what would the Hebrew prophet say to George Lucas today? Um, but uh, maybe we shouldn't go there because that's another one too. I was there in the theater, 1977. I just become a believer a few months before, and I was totally enthralled by the spirituality of uh, of that film. Not really understanding what it was. Sure. There was a reason why a lot of people were taken up by it at that time in history. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so we could talk for hours more. I really appreciate this conversation. If people want to contact you, Tony, how can they do that? Uh, through the contact form on the Tyndale House website is the best way, uh, tyndalehouse.com. And there's a, there'll be a, there's a link there for contact. Right. So use okay, that I'll the, find that exact link. I'll put it in the description if people want to contact you through there. Is there anything else that you want to add before we go? Oh, just a couple of hours worth. but. <laughs> So maybe we'll get to do this again. Um, and uh, yeah, people could check out your books and all the best to you in your in complete your PhD. And I hope you're able to make it to Cambridge uh, as soon as is your heart's desire. So thank you so much for doing this with me today. That's a great pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Well, again, if you want to contact uh, Tony Watkins, you could do so from the Tyndale House uh, website. I will provide the link. If you have any questions for me directly, you could always contact me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. <music>